So here's some exciting news. Our podcast, Creating Our Own Lives, Cool for Short, has just launched its second great season on humor as a tool for survival. On Being's Lily Percy is speaking with 15 different voices on the surprising ways humor shapes us and brings meaning to our lives. Insights from writers, comedians, political and financial reporters, a sex educator, and a rabbi, starring voices like Margaret Cho, Hari Kondabolu, Terry McMillan, Sam Sanders, and Lindy West. Find Cool on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorite shows. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Martin Sheen. Download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org. Hello. 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 Is that Martin Sheen? It is, yes. Hello. It's Krista Tippett. It's so wonderful to have you at the other end of the microphone. Hello, Krista. I'm delighted to meet you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I I hear... um, Chris, do you hear it sounds like a very, like a cave? Is that because something was open? How do I sound to you? You sound great. Oh, actually, you sound good, too. Um, Yeah, I'm just so thrilled, but I don't want to talk about anything substantive until we get the sound right. (laughs) So tell me something uh, mundane like what you had for breakfast. Well, I'm I'm having it here at the studio. I'm okay. I'm in the middle of a cappuccino. Oh, good. <laughs> Did you just wake up? No, no. I okay. I was up at uh, six thirty. All but, right. Uh, yeah. um, I don't usually eat much breakfast. Okay. Chris, how are we? What do you think? Okay, good. We can go. Do you have any questions for me before we start? Uh, no. I <clears throat> I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed your book that I read some weeks ago Hmm. and how I related to your journey, um, particularly your time in uh, Berlin. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I was uh, uh, on a tour uh, with the Living Theater uh, in 1961, and we played in Berlin uh, just weeks before the wall went up. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just found that extraordinary how you spent... uh, all those years, uh, you know, with the uh, you were working for the American ambassador, and then you were involved in the uh, the planning uh, for uh, uh, peaceful means of uh, nuclear weapons. Would I be correct? In saying well, that? I kind of. I think that may be exaggerating my contribution. But I think 1961, before the wall went up, um, yeah. was there was probably some similarity to. You know, when I arrived in in the eighties, when the wall was about to come down, and of course, no one could have imagined that. But there was all this movement, this fluidity, um, and isn't it amazing? It's a vanished world, isn't it? I mean, you yeah. can't. I can't. Yeah, my yeah, children yeah. don't really believe the stories I tell them about yeah. Berlin. They just yeah. don't believe me. Oh, yeah. Well, that's mm-hmm. great. Well, yeah, I remember that yeah. summer we were traveling to the east uh, on the S Bahn. And as soon as you crossed the western yeah. border into the east, it was like going back to the end of World War II. Yeah. There were still, you know, uh, uh, shells of buildings in some of the main streets. It just looked like they swept up the rubble. Yeah. And they were, uh, you know. And we went over there to visit the um, uh, the uh, Berliner Ensemble. Theater. Yes. We, yeah, we were invited With the Brecht there. children. Yes, yeah. yes. We met, and I well, met we them, met, too. Uh, they were still, Eckhard Schall was still running it when oh, I was there. Oh, well, I met the mother, Helen okay. Weigel, <laughs> Brecht's uh, 
life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's. Um, have you have you been back since? Because oh, you know, yes, the Espan yeah. was back. still like that in the eighties when I arrived. It was yeah. still that changing yeah. worlds when you went over. Yeah. Oh, well, I've so enjoyed. Um, <clears throat> Really steeping in your work, um, in books that have been written about you and that you've contributed to, and and um, going back and watching episodes of The West Wing and <laughs> watching The Way. So I'm really I'm oh. a, I'm a Martin Sheen expert right now. <laughs> oh, okay, and, um, good. And uh. it's it's been great. Um, you know, one thing I would love um, I'd love before we start for you to say. Your name, your your legal name, the name you were born with. I want to hear you oh, say yes, it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, me llamo Ramon Esteves, a.k.a. Martin Sheen. Okay. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so one thing that's interesting to me is um, it seems to me that, especially when you were playing President Bartlett on The West Wing, you know, journalists have written a lot across the years about your progressive politics. And... Um, Catholics here and there have paid attention to your to your religious foundations, um, which in fact underpin your progressive politics. Mm-hmm. I experience you to be a very integrated person, have an integrated experience and conscience. And so, uh, you know, I just want to say that as we start, I, I'm 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 looking forward to speaking. You know, I feel like there are these there are these two people who the public knows. There's Martin Sheen and Ramon Estevez, and I want to talk to both of you, or all of you, as, as it were. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I exactly. feel like that's who you live as, but I'm not, well, I don't feel like this <laughs> person gets drawn out all the time. So here we are. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> good us. deal. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I do feel sometimes I, I live in a split personality, hmm. you know. Well, okay, um, we'll see what we can, we'll unite that. Yeah. Um, so you grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Now, I've seen... Um, I'm kind of confused. I've seen that you were the seventh of thirteen children, or that you had ten children at home. In any case, you had no, lots my, of siblings. My, uh, my mother actually had twelve pregnancies okay. and ten survived. Yeah, oh, there right. were nine That's boys it. and one girl. Okay, and I was the seventh son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, my brother Alfonso, God rest him, and I argued over the legacy of the seventh son because he was the seventh birth, but I was oh. the seventh to survive. There was a male <laughs> early on mm. uh, that did not survive, so mm. uh, I shared that with uh, my dear brother, Alfonso. I see. So there's this question I, I always ask when I start an interview, and I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know how, how you would start to describe the religious and spiritual background of your childhood. How would you describe that now? Well, it was the uh, foundation, really, of the rest of my life. Uh, you know, I was raised in a, uh, a large, very uh, poor uh, uh, family of immigrants. So I was the first generation uh, Spanish-Irish. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that that really set the focus for my, the rest of my life. And we had a phrase when I was young in our community uh, that, you know, you, uh, one serves oneself best by serving others first. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that stood me uh, in pretty good stead the rest of my life because it, it was always a question of community where if you were doing well, and I mean well by you were living an honest life, you were a part of a community. And when you were not, 
you had you had drifted from that community. So mm-hmm. I, I drifted kind of in and out, you know. But as a boy, uh, the staples of my life were my family, my church and school, and they were all integrated. They, you, you couldn't right, separate right. one from the other. My teachers were as much my family as my uh, blood relatives, you know. We had the Sisters of Notre Dame at this little community in Dayton, Ohio, Holy Trinity Parish, and they uh, they were a great source of inspiration. And, you know, they were as poor as we were. You know, their mm-hmm. fathers uh, were carpenters and bricklayers and and mechanics and so forth, factory workers, like our parents were. So we identified very, very closely to them. Hmm. You know, when I look at your um, your life, the way you're, the trajectory of your life, and you know, the story of your, de- the, I'd say, the development of your social and your spiritual conscience across adulthood, um, it's very much a kind of kind of cl- classic story of. Um, you know how um, you know there was hardship, but how hardship often leads to what are gifts, and it, that it's it's not so much what you're given, but how you take it in and work with it. There's this yes. great line from uh, the beginning of the way this film you made with your son Emilio. You don't he where he says to you, "You don't choose a life, Dad. You live one." And yes. I, I was watching that as I was kind of in the midst of preparing this, and I thought, well, that's your story. Um, I mean, <laughs> yes, yeah. Right? I mean, you're... You know, that film was a family uh, enterprise, really. We, mm. we, we couldn't get any funding from a studio to do it, so we borrowed the money, literally, and did it ourselves. So really? I'm very, very proud of that film. In fact, it's, it's, the, it's the, the thing I'm most uh, proud of in my whole career, you know, because it is a reflection of who I am and where I come from and what I stand for. And I just to make that film with my son, uh, who wrote it and directed it and played in it, you know, yeah, and my wife yeah. produced it, and it was a whole family affair, and it was the most gratifying experience I've ever had as a professional. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk some more about, about that pilgrimage. Um, okay. And then I do want to talk about that. I, okay. Um, you know when I, but when in your on your own family when you were growing up, when I mean, your mother died when you were eleven, and yeah, um, mm-hmm. which is very hard, and it sounds like your father raised all of you um, on yeah, his own. Yeah. You've said yeah. somewhere that uh, caddying was where your social conscience began to be formed. Can you say some more about that? <laughs> Very and I clear. guess that was a job you had to take because you all had to work to keep the family going. Yeah, we going. did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I started caddying. Uh, I hate to admit this because I'm going to reveal my age, but I started caddying in 1949 at a private uh, country club. Hmm. And, uh, it, yeah, th- those were very uh, formative years. I spent my whole boyhood, but at least every summer, early spring to late fall, at the golf course caddying, you know, for um, for a lot of very um, overprivileged people, right. <laughs> mostly right. the men. But I'm very grateful to them because, in large measure, they taught me what not to be. Uh, and... Um, you know, it just became a matter of course, you know, that they, you were a servant and they rarely saw you, saw you as a person, you know, and mm-hmm. so they would uh, uh, tell stories in front of you and, and um, talk about each other, They, you know, and you were kind of, uh, you were kind of a, a fly uh, on the on the tree, on the golf course, as it were, a bumblebee. Wow. But you, you got a sense of these people 
Uh, and it was not, um, it, it, in few exceptions, you know, there were some really extraordinary people there who were conscious. But most of them were overprivileged and unaware, you know, and so they were not our inspiration, you know. Right, right. And, and then it's so interesting to me that, you know, you say you had a movie habit early on, and but you weren't really, I mean, you were kind of the... the the expectation in your life is that you would do some kind of manual labor, but you couldn't do that because you had had this forceps injury at birth. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I wonder injury, if yeah, that yeah. movie career would even have been a path you'd walked into. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it that way because I, I never uh, really had a, a consciousness about what um, I wanted to do, and yet I knew... And I think all children know at a very, very young age something about themselves, deeply personal, that mm. it's almost impossible to communicate uh, with any understanding to anyone else. Uh, but I, I had this as well, and, and, and I started going to movies, I guess I was around five or six, and gradually it dawned on me that I was like one of those people I was looking at on the screen. And, and it was a revelation, and it was a great... Uh, a, um, a, a, a great uh, sense of peace overcame me as a child because I, I knew that it was possible that I could do that. It, it, mm. In fact, it was more than I that I could do that. It was that I was that already. Mm. I, I, I just actor. sort of embraced it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I knew it, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh, that's what I. Oh, fine. I was worried about this. Uh, this business deep inside of me that I could not communicate. Oh, that's what it is. Fine. All right. Well, and I just sort of waited until I was, uh, <laughs> um, you know, old enough to pursue it. Mm. And I did, you know. And then I think you, like a lot of people, you weren't, you, you became less religious or less overtly religious as you as you left home and ventured out in your career. Yeah. Is that right? I mean, it just yeah, wasn't stopped so. being. Yeah. I mean, this is what your passion was, and I, yeah, it was interesting sure. to yeah. me that you discovered the Catholic worker in New York. But I sense it was yeah. not so much as a devout Catholic as, a, but as <laughs> no. a starving actor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I I, uh, I was I was working. Um, at the American Express Company as a stock boy down on Lower Broadway in Manhattan, and I got fired just a few weeks before Christmas. Huh. And then uh, a week or so later, I got hired uh, at the Living Theater by uh, Julian Beck and Judith Molina, who were hmm. two of my first uh, teachers, really. Um, they had a very powerful influence on me the rest of my life. They were extremely... Uh, uh, involved in social justice work and in uh, oh. uh, political uh, radicalism. You know, they were the first band the bombers and women strike for peace. And um, gosh, they were just a great source of inspiration to me. And I started at the theater uh, as a curtain puller and a general understudy, uh, uh, and they didn't have a lot of money. In fact, I was paid $5 a week. This was in 1959. Oh, which, but I was worth every penny. Yeah. <laughs> and at any rate, they said, look, we know you can't live on this, but we have a friend who has a soup kitchen nearby. And uh, you go down there and, uh, and you don't have to pay anything and you just wait online and uh, they'll feed you uh, five nights a week. And they did. And I went down and I found at that time they were on Christie Street and. Uh, Manhattan, and uh, yeah, it was the Catholic worker. And was and that I friend of theirs, there. Dorothy Day, or was it someone else who? 
Uh, yes, the friend was Dorothy Day. She had done uh, uh, some prison time with uh, Judith Molina. They were very oh, right. close friends. In fact, each one of them wrote about the other uh, in their autobiographies. Uh, yeah, they were in the uh, uh, the women's prison. Uh, they did 30 days together for protesting wow. uh, nuclearism. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was the na- national religion at the time. Oh. Yeah. So interesting. But uh, yeah, and so uh, I started going there, and f- for months uh, and months I went there. I had no idea. I could have met Dorothy Day, but I couldn't <laughs> tell you because I wasn't yeah. there to, for any other reason but to satisfy my <laughs> hunger. Uh, yeah, and then one day I said, uh, "You know, you guys are so kind, uh, and I'd like to pay you back a little bit. How can I help you out?" And they said, "Oh well." Come on uh, uh, Sunday, we were folding our newspaper. I said, you guys got a newspaper? Oh, right. oh yes. And it was the Catholic Worker, of mm-hmm. course. And, and that was uh, uh, that cemented my relationship with uh, I became very close to the Catholic Worker and uh, to all the workers across the country. In fact, I'm very, um, I'm very uh, dedicated to the Catholic Worker here in Los Angeles. To right. My friends. Uh, um, I think yeah, I just recently... Uh, I think Dorothy Day, did she die in 1980s? that sound right? Yes, 1980s. Yeah. Reason, for some reason, I didn't realize that she had, I, I, that she'd been alive until 1980. I, I, I had oh, this yeah, idea of, was, right, yeah. then that's, I mean, I was, yeah. I was alive then too. But. Yeah, no, she founded The Worker with Peter Moran, mm-hmm. I guess, about 1934 yeah. in New York City. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So you also, you, it seems like you had, you know, you 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 worked hard. Obviously, you you did the starving artist thing, and and you worked your way up to a very successful career. Kind of as you as you got into your thirties, you were in Badlands, directed by Terrence Malick, with and co-star mm-hmm. Sissy Spacek, and then you did Apocalypse Now in nineteen seventy seven, and and that was the kind of this classic human drama where you had absolutely arrived at some kind of peak, and you also hit bottom. Um, mm-hmm. That's a way to put it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, you had a yeah. near-death experience, and here's you wrote somewhere. Even though I did fi- not physically die that night of this kind of near-death experience, which was the kind of rock bottom, the Willard character in me died. So, talk about like, w- w- you know, what was going on with that role, and what was going on with you? Well, I think it was, you know, it was such a, a deep and personal conflict deep within my being. About um, you know the the battle that all of us face uh, in our lives if if we're trying to live an honest life mm-hmm. we know when we're dishonest and that would and that that experience brought it out you know I was desperate to be a movie star and I thought this was my you know opportunity I was working uh, with the the greatest. American filmmaker and Francis Coppola, and yeah. I had the lead role in this uh, in this very very powerful drama, Captain Willard. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time, I was dealing with my own personal limitations, my brokenness, my uh, fear and resentments and uh, insecurities, and they both uh, collided uh, on that on that production. Yeah. Hmm. And it led eventually to uh, a, an awakening that 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 eventually uh, brought me back to Catholicism. It sounds like you had—I mean, you had you had a health crisis, you had kind of an yeah. existential crisis. But then it's not like you had this—you know—road <laughs> experience on the road to Damascus. I mean, you—it it was a couple of years there. It sounds like where you were 
where you were kind of reckoning yeah. with this and kind of into the 80s. And then, yeah. so you've kind of described this arc of, of you know, you're in the Philippines doing this Apocalypse Now, this remarkable picture. And, and then a couple of years later, you kind of come full circle in Paris. Um, mm-hmm. Is that right? Or, yeah. oh, when yes, you, and you was, did yeah. the movie, before that, you did the movie, also the Gandhi movie. It's interesting to me how you're, your film projects and your your um, acting projects, they also, I don't know if it's that they converge with where you are personally, or maybe it's this thing of not choosing your life but living it. It seems like where what you know you you yeah. are working with whatever your ex- life experience is, and for you that life experience included these these film projects and these dramatic roles, which took you kind of out yeah. of yourself or to a larger yeah, place. Yeah, I've often said that if I knew going in what awaited me on an apocalypse, I would have passed. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but since I went through that experience, I wouldn't change it for the world because it brought me to myself in ways that maybe nothing else could have at the time. I survived a physical uh, 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 illness, but I, I didn't know if I could have survived a spiritual crisis. Mm-hmm. And that that made it real clear how much was at stake. So, yeah, between Apocalypse and Gandhi, there were about four years. Yeah. And they were years of reflection and um, alcohol abuse and insecurity and anger and resentment and um, a near breakup with my family, and um, but I was searching for that elusive thing that all of us search for. Most of the time, we're not even conscious of it, but we're we're searching for ourselves in an authentic way. We want to recognize the person we see in the mirror, yeah. and embrace that person with all the brokenness and and lackluster, all the things that only we are aware of in the depths of our being. And that's what I was i was offered an opportunity to deal with when I finally arrived in India in 1981 to do this part in uh, Gandhi. I was only there about five or six weeks, and mm-hmm. my son Emilio uh, accompanied me. Uh, and that was the turning point because I saw a poverty very up close and personal that I could not have imagined. And it, it it really went to the center of my being and took me out of myself. Right. And, it, and that's what changed my life. Right. Yeah. So there had been that inward journey and that inward reckoning. And then yeah. this also took you back out again. And those things came together, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I came home from India really shaken. And I remember bringing some books on Indian philosophy and Hinduism and nonviolence and and all of the the energy that was was mine to absorb during that period. Yeah. And I and as soon as I got home I had to go straight away to Paris uh, to start a film that I had gotten my signals crossed. I didn't realize I had to be there so soon. But I did and, and no one could go with me because the kids were in school and so it was January of of, uh, or February of 81. And while I was in Paris during that very, very sensitive period, I ran into an old and very dear friend who became my mentor, really, and that was Terence Malick, mm-hmm. who was living in Paris, very kind of underground, um, extremely shy man to begin with, but 
this uh, time in his life, he was um, he was doctoring a lot of scripts. That's how he made his living. But he <laughs> he didn't surface. He had done I had done Badlands with right. him in 1972, and he was celebrated for that when it opened in '74. And then he he did uh, a, a, an equally impressive film called Days of Heaven. And then he kind of disappeared. Yeah. But he, he was on the same kind of journey, I guess, I was. But he saw in me this struggle, and he, um, I guess for lack of a better term, became for me a spiritual advisor. And we talked endlessly. Whenever I had a free moment, I was spending it with he and his wife uh, in Paris. And, um, and Michelle... Uh, who has passed away, incidentally. Mm-hmm. And he, but, he, he um, gave you the Brothers Karamazov? Was yes, he would that? give me material along the way. He said, well, Martin, I think you're ready for this. And he'd give me material. We'd talk about that. <laughs> and then he'd give me another book. And the final step, I guess, in my journey was the Brothers Karamazov. Yeah. And that did it. I, you know, I, it's, it, it got me in ways uh, that uh, I could not have imagined. I, I stayed up nights. I, it took me a, a week to read it. And I couldn't remember what version I'd read, uh, English ver- translation, but it uh, it was over a thousand pages. So yeah. <laughs> but and then I finished it on. Um, I mean, I remember very specifically um, May Day in Europe is a big celebration. Yeah. It's like our Labor Day, yeah. and I had off from work that day. I'd finished it the night before, and I knew that I had to respond to this need within me that was now at a very critical crossroads, and that is, all right, where do you go from here? And I walked, uh, I was living in the left bank at that time, and I walked over to uh, this little Catholic church. It's the only uh, English-speaking church in all of uh, France, I discovered later, but it's St. Joseph's. It's just off the, uh, the, um, the, uh, well, it's on the, through my role, I'm, I'm, hmm. I may be not mistaken. I may be mistaken, but at any rate, okay. uh, they they built a new uh, church on top of the old one. But I was in the old one, and it was the church where uh, Oscar Wilde converted. And uh, okay. I learned that later. I said, "Well, I think I came to the right place." Yeah, and I came. <laughs> right. I, I came back to Catholicism, and it was the 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 single most uh, joyful moment of my life. Because I knew that I had come home to myself, uh, and in deeply personal ways, this satisfaction has lasted all these years. Mm. I, I'm I'm still on the honeymoon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> go figure. Uh, well, I, well, it's beautiful. I wonder. But see, I didn't come back. I I was afraid to come back to the piety of my youth. You know. The, yeah. I I wanted the sacraments. I wanted the community, but I didn't want to feel like I was under a microscope and that God was watching me and mm-hmm. looking for me to make a mistake and now I got you, you know. Yeah. That was the old church. Uh, since I left, there had been Vatican II and many changes, but there'd been many changes in me personally. And so I knew I wouldn't be happy with piety. It had to be an active spirituality. And uh, so I, I felt like I came back to the church in a, in a new way. I mean, I was now aware of Daniel Berrigan and Philip Berrigan and the peace movement and Dorothy Day and Mother Teresa and uh, uh, Teilhard de Chardin and, and yeah. Thomas Merton and 
all of the heroic heroes of the that Catholic, Catholic Church communion of saints. 20th century. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the communion of saints. So I knew that it was going to cost me. I knew that it wasn't about, you know, uh, it wasn't a free ride. It was going to be very, very costly. And it was, and it is, and it will continue to be, I hope, because anything worthwhile has to cost you something. Otherwise, you're left to question its value. So, <laughs> I want to I I keep going on that. I just want to ask you a couple questions before we do that. One is, I just, so just imagine, every, people who are listening to this may not have ever read the Brothers Karamazov, or may have read it 20 or 30 years ago in college. I mean, it was, it's a great well, novel. I wouldn't recommend it unless you want your life changed. <laughs> <laughs> Say a little, I mean, it's a, it's a great novel that weaves into the great debates yeah. of his age about God and free will yeah. and morality. But could you just yeah. say a little bit about what was it in that book that galvanized you? It's about the reality of commitment. It's about knowing that you're living an honest life hmm. and knowing when you're not, basically. Okay. And it's about family. It's done within family and community. Hmm. And it's, it's not something that you can easily shake. It's not a work that you can put down and pick up something else and not reflect. You'll find yourself going back to it again and again and again. It was Dorothy Day's uh, favorite book as well. I and didn't she know that. Read it, uh, yeah, she read it on a number of books. She would reread it and talk about it and write about it, yeah. Dostoevsky had a, um, a, a grip on the reality of life as it is. And he had, he was, you know, he was a habitual gambler. He was not, you know, a, uh, a celebrated man in, in many respects, but he longed to live an honest and free life because that's really where we find, we find the presence of God or the one, the other, whatever we express as a higher power hmm. that we, 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 we are, part of a community and that that work Dushevsky's work specifically in that book is about being a part of a community and not being able to let it go without a severe penalty hmm. and i think that points at something a dynamic that i sense which is you know on the one hand you're talking about this call to activism which you followed after that um but also there's a, there's the inner the inner work and those two things go together and love mm-hmm. is a word you use when you talk about you know that conversion that experience you had um yeah. you know you said somewhere i was almost 41 years old before i had a sense of being loved so yes it's yes it's mm-hmm. that outward that outward giving but it's also something so profound that's happening inside you. And I mean, would you, was that also, that sense of being loved, was that also a new realization that you had about being Catholic that hadn't been? Or, well, that, the, the Catholicism was a very clear reflection of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, and I didn't mean to uh, imply that I had never felt love. No, I was deeply loved. I happened to be married to one of the great people I've ever known in my life. Right. Uh, I think you're talking, but I, I understood it to be a, a, a kind the, the of love. love that I, yeah. yeah, the yeah. love that I long for, and I think all of us really long for, mm-hmm. is knowing that we are loved. Mm. 
a knowingness about our being that unites us to all of humanity, to all of the universe, that despite ourselves, we are loved. And when you realize that and you embrace that, you begin to look at everyone else and you can see very clearly who in your vision knows they're loved and who does not. Mm -hmm. And that makes all the difference. And I... I began to give thanks and praise for that love. You know how so often people say they they go on this journey, and I, I said it too, that I'm looking for God. I'm looking, but God has already found us, really. Uh, we just, we have to look in the spot where we're least likely to look, and that is within ourselves. And when we find that love, that presence, deep within our own personal being. And it's not something that you can earn or something that you can work towards. It's just a realization of being human, of being alive, mm. of being conscious. And that love is overwhelming. And that is the basic foundation of joy. And we become uh, enviable, joyful. Mm. And, 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 and then we see it in others, and we seek to, in, to, to ignite that love in others. You can't do it, or you can't force someone to realize they're loved, but you can show them. And, <laughs> right. and most of the, the effort we make is just by living our lives, by being compassionate and loving and respectful and 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 being a vassal of service for others that's what feeds that love right right uh, it's like giving back but just that embrace I, I sometimes you know i it is so overwhelming at times this this reality of loving oneself because one is loved that it just it brings you up short you just sit and stare sometimes into a vacuum and say, where did this come from? And why is it so clear? And why is it so simple and so powerful? And anyone that's experienced it knows that. And there's no remedy except to embrace it and keep going and to try and share it. You know, I've sometimes, one of the great mysteries uh, that I experience uh, at Mass is the reception at communion, you know. Yeah. How, how do we embrace that? How can we possibly uh, consciously understand what that is? And I don't have a clue. I just stand online and say, I'm Ramon, called Martin, your friend. You're welcome here. And I'm with them. <laughs> Whoever the crowd is I'm getting online with, you just look at the people who are on that line, that, that community, that is the greatest and simplest uh, expression of uh, overtly trying to explain this mystery I'm talking about, because it is a mystery. Yeah. It is probably yeah. the most profound mystery in all of the universe, this, this love. And, uh, but I just say, I'm with them, yeah. I'm with whoever <laughs> this community, the old and the young and the rich and the poor and the black and the white and the crippled, and the, and the disturbed, and the happy, and the sad. And all of these people are standing online. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed just watching people online to embrace that sacrament. It is the most profound 
a thing I, 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 I never, ever can get over it. It's just something you have to surrender to and just saying, yeah, I'm with them. That's the community of saints. And that is your, that's the basis of and the kind of that embeddedness in that sense of love and that sense of belonging, that sense of community is then the foundation from which you got very engaged in the world in a, in a different way. And also yeah. I'm so interested it's, in... It's experiencing <laughs> true mm-hmm. personal joy. Okay. And yeah. we're and working on hard things, right? I mean, also experiencing joy and 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 fighting against injustice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's. A, I couldn't do it uh, if I, I. You know, all the demonstrations I've ever been on have been uh, have been uh, nurtured and inspired and performed in this arena of joy and. So when I would go to a demonstration, no matter what the issue or the cause, it would always be prayerful and joyful. I would never take it personal mm-hmm. with the guards or the police or whoever I was, uh, I was being arrested by. It, it was um, never, ever, ever took it personal. Uh, in fact, I remember my first arrest with Dan Berrigan uh, in New York. Uh, we were protesting uh, nuclearism. And he was a uh, Jesuit priest, and yes, really he became still well with known us. as a Vietnam War Vietnam. protester in particular. Yes, later, he went to prison. Yeah. He burned draft files at Catonsville, mm-hmm. Maryland, and went to federal prison with his brother Philip for several years for opposing the war in Vietnam. And um, he was the greatest source of inspiration for me when I came back. He was underground after he was found guilty, and he stayed underground for months and. Uh, every now and then he would surface uh, to a peace group or a community. And uh, once he was asked by someone in in one of these groups, oh, yeah, Father Berrigan, it's all well and good for you to protest the war in Vietnam and to choose to go to prison. You don't have any children. What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our children if we go to prison? And Daniel Berrigan responded, what's going to happen to them if you do not? So that uh, that's the kind of uh, inspiration that yeah. I I had to embrace. With uh, yeah, Dan Berrigan changed my life. I've often said that Mother Teresa drove me back to Catholicism, but Daniel Berrigan keeps me there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> tell and tell. So it, you have collected these yeah. comrades and these living saints. I feel so. Mother Teresa, tell yeah. me about tell tell that story about Mother oh, Teresa dear. driving well, you that, back. Which one? When did, when did you, <laughs> well, well, <laughs> Tell your favorite. When did you yeah, actually first well, encounter her, and how? Where, where well, in yeah, this in this journey you were on? Where did she yeah, come in? Uh, I met her uh, not too long after um, my um, reconversion. In Paris? Oh gosh, I'm getting. No, I met her in Rome actually uh-huh. uh, during the first Gulf War, which would have been 1991, oh, if okay. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So you've already a recounted. dear friend yeah. of mine. I'm sorry. What? No, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah. A dear friend of mine, uh, who's my attorney, my criminal attorney, also is one of my heroes, uh, Joseph Cosgrove, who was a um, a uh, an attorney in Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania, uh, a public defender, and, and you know, public defenders usually 
are assigned to a case where the defendant is photographed committing the crime. So, you know, they are given the most difficult cases of all, and they do them for very little money. So most of the time, they're just trying to keep their clients alive. And he had five of them on death row that uh, um, he had served. But at any rate, he called me one day uh, and said, uh, look, I'm on a peace mission to end the war. Uh, in the Gulf, this is the first Gulf War. Uh, George Bush won uh, okay, right, right. war, and um, he said, "Would you join me?" I will. I said, "What are you going?" He said, "Well, meet me at Italia tomorrow, uh, here in New York, and we, we're we're on our way uh, to, to uh, work to end this war." Okay. okay, I said. So the next day, I met him at Italia in New York, and he said, "Oh, great! Here we go. That's, we we're on the plane now." I said, "Where is everybody?" He said, no, it's just you and I. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'll tell you on the plane. So <laughs> he, he devised this um, program. Uh, he had a friend who knew Mother Teresa, and this friend uh, got us an appointment in Rome. She was on her way uh, to establish a community uh, in her home, uh, and she was stopping in Rome. Uh, to collect some sisters, uh, bringing some sisters from India, and on her way. Uh, and meanwhile, she was going to see the Holy Father and spend some time in her community in Rome, and we had an appointment to meet her and say, okay. So uh, we went to this uh, place in Rome, and uh, it was a former chicken coop, and this was her <laughs> community, and we were shown around, and, uh, and we went in the... Um, in the back of the uh, church in the vestibule and suddenly the door burst open and she walks in. And when you see Mother Teresa, have you met her? No, Did no, sadly her? I never met her, no. Yeah. Well, she was about four foot ten yeah. and so most people, except children, would tower above her and you'd mm. look over the top of her head and that didn't seem right. I thought she was <laughs> ten feet tall. So I crouched down, you know, and, my, and you burst into tears. Mm. That's the next mm. thing that happens mm. to you is you grovel to say who you are and why you're there and so forth. And she could be the most disarming human being. Oh, no, 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 sit down, sit down, no, no. Now, where are you from? You, know, you want a Coca-Cola? How about some coffee? No, now, why are you here? And the three of us sat around. This is Joe Cosgrove and myself and Mother Teresa sitting at a, uh, at a little card table in, the, in, this, uh, in the back of this little chapel in Rome. And Joe explained that he was going to offer his services to the Vatican to end the war uh, in the Gulf. Uh, you cannot go to the world court as an individual. You have to go as a country. And so the Vatican was the only country in the world, that, and people forget that it is a country, yeah. and the Pope is a head of state. And John Pope John Paul II was advocating, um, mediating the dispute in the Gulf between Saddam Hussein and George Bush. And so he offered his services, and they would take it to the world court. And neither of the belligerents would go. So Joe said uh, he would represent the Vatican pro bono if Mother would uh, get the uh, the Pope's permission to do that. And Mother heard the uh, the proposal, and she said, uh, "The World Court. I never heard of the World Court." <laughs> and Joe said, "Oh yeah, uh, it's been in existence for quite a while." And he explained how um, Nicaragua took the United States to the World Court to stop their uh, uh, contra war and. In Nicaragua, and the United States would not represent itself. Mr. Reagan had an empty chair there, and Nicaragua mm -hmm. won 
that case, uh, and uh, the United States never paid the fine because they didn't recognize the court. They do now, but right. the Reagan administration did not. At any rate, um, uh, now we're dealing with the Bush administration, and the Vatican uh, was willing to do this, and Joe explained this to Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa looked off very wistfully and said, uh, the world court, she says, and how do they make them obey? Which was a key question. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> and Joe said, oh, no, Mother, it's a moral victory. That's all it is. And she said, well, I would, I would do that, and I will mention it to the Holy Father. And meanwhile, you'll come here to Mass on Friday morning, will you? Mm-hmm. We're having a Mass in English. Yeah, we will, we said. And so we <laughs> stayed in Rome, and we attended that 6 a.m. Mass and uh, joined the prayers of the faithful when everybody was asking for intentions, um, you know, to pray for this one and pray for that one. Mother Teresa said, uh, and let us remember to pray for all those we promised to pray. And by the way, the war ended that morning. Hmm. And, and Joe said, don't mess with mother. <laughs> that was my first encounter with her. <laughs> well, and I have to say, you did, and I did not know this about you until I kind of got into this preparation for this conversation. You got arrested, you got arrested a lot. Uh, protesting the wars in El Salvador and Nicaragua. I mean, at yes, one point yes. you said you got arrested every Wednesday morning. Yeah, was we that, had the was Wednesday that in LA morning or where coalition. Was that? Yeah, at the federal building. We would meet at La Placita uh, every Wednesday morning with this coalition that included, uh, you know, priests and uh, rabbis and uh, people from all over the community. It was uh, mostly a leadership uh, a bunch of... Uh, Father John Deere. Yes, who I have met, yeah. Yeah, Bishop. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, um, You know John, yeah, he's an old dear friend of mine. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, and Father Oliveras, who led the thing, who's deceased now, God rest him. And uh, and so many religious leaders, Father uh, Michael Kennedy uh, Mm. and uh, Greg Boyle. Oh, yeah, uh, he's a friend. Uh, Yeah, all these guys uh, led these things, and we would block the courthouse entrance uh, protesting the war in El Salvador, and we'd be arrested. And uh, and I had a, a, a backup. I had like 13 arrests at one time before I got a court date, and it's federal because it's a federal building, so you come before a federal uh, judge. And she said, uh, well, because I'm always arrested under my real name, Ramon. Right, right. I have no, I have no ideas, Martin. So she said, Ramon, I, I doesn't... It doesn't seem if if I put you in jail, it isn't going to make any difference. You're going to continue. You're hell-bent on this protest, aren't you? I said, I'm afraid so, Your Honor. She said, well, will you do community service? I will, I said. And she sent me to the Bread and Roses uh, Homeless Cafe in Venice, and I was there for 10 years. <laughs> and that was Sister Rose Harrington, right? Sister Rose. Another one of your saint it. comrades. One of my, uh, God rest her, yeah, another one of my heroes, yeah. Mm-hmm. She founded this unique... Uh, a homeless kitchen where they served at tables with flowers and you had to have a mm-hmm. reservation because that told us how many to expect but it also was a great uh, source of dignity for our guests she said we call everyone mr and miss or mrs and they are our guests mm-hmm. and they're the only reason we're here and we treat them with respect and dignity and i did and uh, yeah it was the longest job i've ever had in my life uh, yeah 10 years and in <laughs> fact i only had to leave to go and do the uh, uh, the West Wing. Well, I was going to say, were you working? <laughs> were you acting at that point? Well, <laughs> oh, I was acting a lot of different things, uh-huh. but uh, yeah, that that hit me uh, uh-huh. 
uh, I had to leave to go and do the West Wing. Mm. It it um so uh, obviously no one with your kind of criminal record could ever have been elected president. Um, <laughs> no, thank God. <laughs> but I did I did love it that in those years. What did you say? Did you have like a business card? You you or you presented yourself sometimes? What it was the acting president of the West the, Wing? Uh, the acting president the of acting the United president. States. Yes, yes. A friend of mine, Matt Clark, uh, came up with that, and I, I kind of I I I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Know. So that was from. 1999 to 2006, seven seasons. Yes, it was, yeah. It was one of the best of times. Yeah? Yeah, yeah it really was, yeah. It was a great experience both uh, professionally and personally and spiritually and every other conceivable way. That, that, uh, that cast and, and production staff, uh, Aaron Sorkin, of course, created it. Yeah. And uh, um, I think the, the greatest writer of our decade, really, and um, Tommy Shlami, uh, producer John. Uh, um, gosh, I'm forgetting names. I shouldn't. Uh, I shouldn't go in, in these areas where I can't remember. <laughs> well, we'll. But, we'll, we'll, but we'll yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But we uh, yeah we we were uh, on the air seven seasons, and it was really the best of times. Yeah. It, I it, only asked two things of the production when I got the part. Yeah. And that is that. Could the president be Catholic, and could he have a Notre Dame degree? Really? <laughs> and they gave me both. Yeah, I wanted him to be Catholic so that I could personally relate to every issue on, in a moral frame of reference. And I wanted Bartlett to do that, even with the death penalty and uh, with uh, issues of war and peace. All of it. I wanted it. To, I wanted him to be. Uh, known to be a practicing Catholic, and he dealt with things in a moral frame of reference. Uh, you know, I that's... was inspired by that uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, with Jimmy Carter. Oh, okay. And, yeah, that's, in fact, that's he was one of the inspirations for the character of Bart. It was Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and John Kennedy. Uh, okay. Not bad. Not bad uh, source of inspiration. Yeah, and I, I, I wondered. It, it feels like. Um, you so it was hard for me to believe. I actually went digging around to see did you help write you know and no I read Aaron Sorkin wrote it. But it yeah. felt so much like you like your your character was woven into that that you embodied this 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 character of President Bartlett. Um and but somehow that your own bodily commitment to public life and to this place where politics meets social justice became also part of your stature in that role, which influenced people well beyond you know the way m- most TV dramas influence people. Yeah, you know I I, I can't um, I can't say that I was conscious of that at all. Uh, frankly. Um, I, I was once asked if I would have done the part if Bartlett had been a Republican. Yeah. And I remember without hesitation I responded, yes, as long as as Aaron Sorkin wrote it. Because <laughs> I knew it would be fair and honest. Yeah, it's a little um, hard to imagine, yeah. but... That yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, but I would have. Yeah, if yeah. Aaron had written it, yeah. I knew that it would be an honest interpretation. Mm-hmm. And that you that you insist on being Catholic, that's interesting. I mean, I went back and watched the pilot, and, you know, I think it's 18 minutes in, the White House chief of staff. You have not appeared yet, but the White no, House I chief of staff, the last he, <laughs> he says, this president is a deeply religious man. Oh, I don't remember that yeah. line, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah 
Um, so I mean, there it was. Um, <clears throat> your 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 wish was was um, represented from that from that very beginning. But a deeply religious, deeply Catholic, and also deeply politically progressive man, which is not actually a, a, a Catholic. It's certainly a huge tradition and lineage in Catholicism, right, as we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. But it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the kind of Catholic that's made the news in politics in the last couple Mm -hmm. of decades, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes, true. I would say I was less religious and more, at least in in a personal effort towards spirituality. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be defined by a religion and and to shake that kind of mantle, you know, whatever the religion is. Mm-hmm. I think that what is more unifying, because unfortunately religions so divide us these days yeah. more and more, but spirituality unites us because it's about our humanity, and, and that's where I think we really have to come together. You know, we're, we're very close to, uh, well, we're in Advent now, uh, and uh, one of my favorite uh, Advent quotes is from Thomas Merton. Uh, it's uh, I have it pinned up on my wall at mm-hmm. home. It was in a birthday, or uh, pardon me, a, you know, a, a, a Christ birthday card. It was a Christmas card from Daniel Berrigan, and it had this <laughs> okay. quote. May I may I give it to you? Yes, for, please. This is Advent. Okay. Yeah. Here's what we're dealing with. This is Thomas Merton on a Christmas card. Into this world. This demented inn, where there is absolutely no room for him at all, Christ comes uninvited. Yeah. <laughs> That's Christmas. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, you talk about uh, religion or spirituality or, you know, uh, keeping Christ in Christmas, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who well, wants to deal with that? You know, I love that phrase. That, that quote is my favorite Merton quote. I like that. Into well, this demented inn. <laughs> but, that, but Christ comes, you know, God comes to us uninvited. Yeah. We're, not, we're not out there looking, waiting for him. You know, we think we are. We think, no, no, no. We, when, you know, uh, when, you know, I have another phrase I, I, I use so often when, when I'm faced with having to do something that I know I have to do, and yet I want to, you know, I want to uh, put it off, uh, procrastinate a bit. It's, 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 we must accept the cup as offered, not altered. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, uh, you know, I, we always want to, the, could you pour some out, please? It's so full. Or could you put a little sugar in there, please? Or maybe not today. Can I take some tomorrow? No, yeah. no, I'm afraid not. We have to accept it as it's offered. And so that's, that's what I think the full... Um, embracing of spirituality is really about. It's about a consciousness that is not always um, expressed in religion. Right. But it is and, in our humanity. Yeah. yeah. And, and obviously, you, it was, I mean, I, I, see, I see when people write about the West Wing, they, they often have to remind themselves that it was a television drama and not actually what was happening in the White House. <laughs> I mean, I really no, I see fact, right people catching themselves, but but I mean, but it did. Yeah, we were a, a, we were a uh, what did they call it a parallel universe with right. the actual Bush administration for most of those years. Yes, so. and where was yes. I read so many interesting things like Hillary Clinton just a few years ago being as sec- Secretary of State in Burma and the politicians there telling her they were watching the West Wing to learn the ropes of democracy. Did you know that? Oh my God, no, I never heard that. <laughs> oh my God. But well, well her husband was a great fan of the show. Oh, well, yeah. A big I mean, supporter. Yeah. He, 
Yeah. And then and then kind of the gates closed as soon as the new administration came yeah. in. But we got our looks in with uh, Mr. Clinton. He was a, a he was a, a devotee of the show. He loved the show. Well, yeah. and I think you know what I, I I think even though obviously these were scripts and you were acting, but but this but there was a lot of you did confront as an actor and with those scripts the the complexity and really the messiness of bringing religion as you're saying into politics and into political mm-hmm. issues that just mm-hmm. that that it is um unbelievably well, another complex. word for it i think mm-hmm. is to be human <laughs> to the messiness ourselves. Yeah. yeah it's about being human mm-hmm. you know i don't have the answers to mm-hmm. very many uh uh you know solutions for our problems but i'm 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 mm-hmm. acknowledging that they exist and i'm acknowledging my uh, you know, limitation, but I embrace it, and I'm going to do what I can while I'm here. I think that, that that's basically all anyone can do ever in any situation is yeah. to be human, to be available, and to to be confident in making a contribution for its own sake. Most of the people would never know what you're going to do in your life, you know. It's not recorded, you know. We do it for ourselves, and the only ones that know about it are we and those closest to us, and that maybe as it should be, you know. There's one of the great uh, uh, phrases in AA, they, we are encouraged to do something for someone that costs us something yeah. and never tell anyone. Okay. And it's not talking about costing us financially, yeah. you know. It's like we have to go out of our way for each other, for our own sake, you know? And that kind of human presence as um, as a spiritual discipline. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I wondered if... You, I, I just want to ask you a question, if I may. Okay. How... If, may I? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, if you don't mind, is this business of prayer. Yeah. Do you ask people in your uh, interviews if they pray or how they pray or what they pray or what does prayer mean to them? Have you ever gone into that, uh, um, that area? It's, it, it, it certainly comes up, but it's not a question I would just ask somebody out of the books. It's the most intimate question, right? And I think yes, it's, it a, yeah. and it's such an, and I, I believe there is many ways of praying as there are lives, right? And that yeah. even across yeah. the course of a lifetime. Um, and I mm-hmm. think prayer also is connected to our personality type. You know, I mean, yeah. I think there's people for whom common prayer is feels more natural and some for whom it's private. And so mm-hmm. uh, it, I think— This is the most curious uh, uh-huh. yeah. element of uh, the— of, uh, of the spiritual life. Uh, I'm always mm. curious about how people pray and what images they use mm. to go to that place where they can pray. And what does prayer mean to them? What what do they expect or why did they did they do it? Aren't you curious about that? I know that you are, but I I just wondered if any guests have ever explored that with you a little more deeply. Yeah. Well, we did we did a show early on just about prayer and um with some really different kinds of voices, you know, um, mm-hmm. Anushka Shankar, Ravi Shankar's daughter, who talked about Hindu chant and the, the mm-hmm. prayer, you know, how that is a form of prayer. And 
Roberta Bondi, I don't, you probably don't know her. She's a Methodist theologian, and she was at Emory for a long time. And she, she studied the desert fathers and mothers, and she talks about, you know, prayer as just being present to God, right? And she talked mm-hmm. about how in real life, with the people we're closest to, you know, presence is often a, just about, you know, it's about reading in the same room, right? Or, or it's, it's not mm-hmm. necessarily about talking or asking. Um, so it's about relationship. So, I mean, I have, yeah. it's so interesting to, to pull this out. Is it something across your life that has, do you yeah, feel that prayer has changed a lot? Or yeah, it, you know, uh, one of the most curious uh, questions in the, in the New Testament is, the, is, is the, uh, the friends of Jesus saying, teach us how to pray. Yeah. And he gives them the Our Father. That's the only prayer that really uh, comes to us from, uh, from the Master. Yeah. And how interesting that those men at that time, or at least the people in his community, asked him how to pray. Yeah. That they were devout Jews, and they had a very um, structured form of prayer and worship and sacrifice. And that they asked him Teach us how to pray is the, is a very curious uh, question to me. That they wanted to go deeper, they wanted to go more personal. I guess I don't know. I'm just always curious about how people respond to the initiative to pray. Most of us, you know, we pray when something we're in the form of a crisis, or we want something, or we feel we need something. You know, I saw a, a, a thing, a, a interesting thing, the other day in the paper. Somebody. One of the candidates was asked uh, where uh, God was uh, when 9-11 happened. And he said, well, there's good and there's evil in the world, and we have to be aware of that. Well, my response to that would have been that God was in the towers. Mm. God was present to each individual going through that horrible, uh, facing their own death individually and with a community. That God right. is present in in our deepest hungers and our and our our, our our worst times, as well as our best. But we we often are forced to pray in ways that we can never articulate in, in bad times. How often the expression is "Oh my God" when we see something yeah. good or evil. You know, the expression is the same. "Oh my God," you know. So I'm just curious yeah. about that. How, I just thought I'd can uh, I so can I yeah. ask how you what how yeah. prayer works for you and has that changed across your lifetime? Is it different now than it was twenty years? It, oh ago? yeah, it, you know it changes almost daily. It, yeah. It's it's uh, uh, it, it it I feel it's the one time where I am commanded to use my imagination because that I think mm. is where it starts, isn't it? Yes, uh, <laughs> is with the imagination. So what do you imagine? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? Uh, what are you driving towards? Where are you during that period of prayer? That's the thing that fascinates me. It, for me, it, the, the, the central uh, energy of it, I guess, is at communion, at the Eucharist. Yes. And for the most part, I'm just so stunned and so joy-filled that for the most part, I just say thank you. Right. Thank you for your presence. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm terrified of flying. I still am not comfortable on planes. Oh, I'm always get the beads out and, and, and making <laughs> endless 
hopeless promises, you know, get us up safely now. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And put the beads away. And then comes the uh, turbulence and I get the beads out again. Oh, Lord, please get rid of this. I'll do this. I'll do that. Oh, Lord, be present to me. But, you know, <laughs> so terrified of flying. That's, you must and one day someone. we were filming in Washington on the West Wing. We were filming for days and days and long days, some 12, 14 hour days. And I was exhausted at the end of the week. And I got to the airport and uh, uh, way early. And they said, would you like to board now? I would, I said. And I got in and, and buckled up and went fast asleep. And the next instant, I was jolted awake. The plane was roaring down the runway, just ready to lift off. And I, I bolted awake and I said, thank you. It's been wonderful. I couldn't have asked for anything more. I couldn't have been loved more. I couldn't have loved more. Thank you. And if we don't make it back safely, be present to those who will miss me the most. Mm -hmm. But thank you. It's been wonderful. And that's my prayer, <laughs> is to give thanks and praise, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, you, you know, to, to kind of answer you, I guess that that's what it is for me. It's like, how did I get here? How was I so lucky to get here? Thank you. Mm. And, I, and I, I, I just accept it and give thanks and praise and keep walking. You know, I remember we were shooting a scene in, in the way one night and we were racing against the sunlight and it was the sun was sinking over the mountains and, and Emilio had this shot in mind and he raced us all up to the top of this mountain and put our backpacks on and he said, now go, I'm, I'm just going to film you walking down the mountain. And one of the players yelled, well, what is our motivation? And Emilio turned around and said... To give thanks and praise, of course. And he went back, oh. and, he went back and shot the scene. <laughs> that's what most of our lives are. There it is. Give thanks and praise. You yeah. Know? yeah. Well, then, so let's yeah. let's go there. Let's talk about the way and the, the pilgrimage. Because, you know, you've also said one of the things, one of the ways you describe, you know, who, who is Martin Sheen? Who is, who is Ramon Estevez? You are a pilgrim. Um, now the the road to Santiago de Compostela is uh, is this famous pilgrimage, and now did did you did you go there? Did you do the pilgrimage separately from m making the movie, or, or yeah. you did part yeah. of it, right? Uh, well, I tell you what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandson uh, Taylor, uh, who was working for me as an assistant in 2003, we had a family reunion in Ireland, and I invited everybody to come with us to Spain and do the Camino. Well, I, 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 it was a fantasy. I hadn't, I hadn't practiced. I didn't have enough time. I didn't even know the specifics of the route, and I had a thousand, had no idea no, what, what is it, 800 kilometers. Yeah. It's 800 kilometers. Spain, yeah. It's 500 miles, yeah. Yeah, and it's 1,000 years old, blah, yeah. blah, blah. My father was a Gallego. He was born not too far, about yes. 70 kilometers yeah. from Santiago. He was from Vigo. And so I knew about the uh, Camino, but I had, didn't know it personally. And so uh, we got to Spain, and we were trying to figure out, uh, should we walk it? Should we take horses? Or what? How do we do this? Or we ride bicycles? And, and finally, my sister, Carmen, who lives in Spain, and she, she's a teacher there, and she said, look, why don't you rent a car and drive the Camino? Because you don't have enough time. I had to be back in two weeks to do uh, the, start the new season <laughs> of the West cheating, one. but okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, so we started to drive it, and we got to Burgos, the town which is where the boys stole my bag, if you remember the movie. <laughs> And we stayed in this uh, refugio, which was really called a uh, casa rural, a, a home in the country, for pilgrims, and it was called El Molino, the mill. And uh, my grandson, Taylor, 
and I were seated at the table at the Pilgrim's Supper that night uh, with Matt Clark, my dear friend who played the, the priest in the, uh, the film. Okay. And uh, the three of us are sitting there, and this very beautiful young girl comes along serving supper. She worked there. Her parents uh, ran this uh, refugio. She looked at Taylor, my grandson. My grandson Taylor looked at her, Julia, and they've been looking at each other ever since. <laughs> they got married. They're married. Right? He <laughs> lived there for nine years. They live here now. Yeah. But that was it. And so mm. Emilio felt that he had lost a son on mm. the Camino, and he mm. began going over to visit visit him Gosh, and studying the Camino and reading about it. And finally he came up with the story. Yeah. But that's how it started. Yeah. It's very yeah. resonant. I mean, yeah. I know it's it's yeah. a joyful way of losing a son, but the, but yeah, the film is about so, yeah. the loss yeah. of a son and you yeah. kind of making yeah. the pilgrimage with his ashes. But it yeah. is interesting that it was also... It was also a pilgrimage into your family roots. I mean, back into yes, that, both was, of your yeah. names, Martin and, and Ramon. Yes, it was, yeah. Uh-huh. It, uh, you know, no one had ever been given permission to film inside the cathedral. Oh, I didn't know In that. Santiago, yeah. Um, be, only uh, newsreel footage and documentaries. They never allowed a production company in there to actually film a drama. But uh, we prevailed upon them and said we were very respectful and we were Spanish and we were Catholic and yeah. we were, uh, wanted to celebrate this. And so, the, yeah, they let us in. They lit the cathedral for us and let us film the Mass and the butofamero, you know, the huge uh, incense burner that flies across from ceiling to ceiling. And, uh, yeah, and, it was, uh, and then we, we finished the film in Mushia. Uh, where he dumped the, uh, f- the final residue from the ashes, mm. you know. But, yeah, that was an extraordinary uh, uh, time for us. We filmed it in a sequence. You know, we started in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port and walked over the Pyrenees and, and arrived in Spain and then walked the rest of it. We filmed um, uh, for about uh, 10 weeks on the Camino, and we were lucky enough to get... Uh, um, good weather and uh, very little rain, uh, which everyone told us would not happen. But this was just one of the miracles along the way. But, you know, pilgrimage, uh, uh, although it's a physical uh, endeavor, mm. uh, for the most part it's, a, it's an interior pilgrimage. It's an interior journey, and all the pilgrims uh, who've ever done it uh, have come to that realization. It's, it's, uh, you're walking... Physically, that's something you're doing outside, but there's something else going on inside, and it's the journey to your true self, I think. Mm. You know, we begin to realize, because we're quiet and focused uh, in a way that we normally are not, you know. So you get uh, six, eight, ten weeks uh, on pilgrimage to learn about yourself and to celebrate your life, you know. Well, this is so wonderful. I I just want to ask you a, a couple more questions. Um, sure. I actually want to I want to go back a little bit to the West Wing. You said that it was such an incredible experience, personally, professionally, mm-hmm. and spiritually. How how mm-hmm. would you talk about uh, th- for you that how that was a um, spiritually significant playing that role and being part of that series? Well, um, what we do. Uh, for a living, that is, artists, you know, uh, we, we live on the energy of our imagination. Our imagination projects us to uh, to fulfill our work. And uh, it is the one sure measure of uh, authenticity 
is to use your imagination mm. to um, explore realities. And so working as an actor on the West Wing, uh, reflecting the most powerful office in the world, it seemed to me the most important thing was to project the humanity mm. of that office and that whoever occupied it had a responsibility to be more human than anyone else around him and to trust instinct, the instinct of your human humanness, to embrace all of the brokenness and the insecurities and the fear and anxiety and to trust in something higher that as long as you were doing your best to be honest and forthright, that you would come out on even ground. And I trusted that as an actor. And um, I discovered very early on that if I used different language than what had been written by Aaron Sorkin, uh, I felt it was more realistic. Well, I'm more Martin. Martin would say this, and, and right. I said, yeah, well, okay. And he and I would get into discussions about it because he has a reputation, you know, the, of you know being very strict about using his words, and, yeah. and I mean every one of them. Yeah. And it took me a while to embrace that. And when I finally did and and got out of his way with the language, I realized that it was not Martin. It was Bartlett. Okay. When I used his language, that then I was free to be that character. But I had to surrender myself and at the same time bring all of myself to it. There was a scene one time, he actually, in the I thought it was a mistake, but in the script he had me literally banging my head on the desk in the Oval Office. And mm -hmm. I said, I can't do this. Uh, Aaron, I'm sure you made a mistake. He said, no, if you do it, you'll see. And <laughs> just like all imaginative uh, artists, yeah, I, I was ruled by him, and I did it, and it was the only thing that I could do in the scene that reflected how the president felt at that huh. moment, banging his, <laughs> his head on his desk. <laughs> That's a small example. But whenever I, I, I surrendered to him and to his image of what, what the president was doing and thinking at that moment, it always, always worked. And so I was not working in a vacuum. I had confidence in what I was doing, mm. and I embraced uh, his image with my imagination, and so the two of us uh, were free to explore this guy named Jed Bartlett. I, I actually wondered yeah. how you felt about lighting up a cigarette in a church. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my. <laughs> That was not easy no? because, uh, you know, that's a national cathedral. Yeah. And uh, it, you know what? When we filmed that in the national cathedral, uh, yeah, I was very, very, very reluctant to do that. But it was only when I did it that I, understand, I understood how important it was. Here was a man who was facing despair, who was in a dialogue with the Almighty. That takes a pretty good... Uh, pretty good imagination and a big ego to, to, to pull that off. And I remember the curators of the, uh, of the church were very upset about what I did. And between takes, uh, I was talking to them and I said, I, I, I get the sense that you're not happy with what I'm doing here. And they said, uh, absolutely not. I, we think it's disgraceful and it ought not be done. And I said, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. And I'm 
I'm sorry you, uh, you're subject to this. And then I looked up, and exactly above my head was a stained glass image in the window of Job. Right. And I said, I said, what a coincidence. Look at that guy up there. That's what I am down here today. Yeah, it's yeah. Job crying out to God, how could you do this to me? Yeah. On the other hand, you know, right. <laughs> it, was like, it was so biblical. Yeah. It was so, uh, it was so ingrained uh, in the Jewish community to have a, an open dialogue with God. Right. That it's also not at prayer, all hard you know? to imagine that Job would have lit up a cigarette if he could have. <laughs> yes, he would have. <laughs> yes. And stomped around right, in the sanctuary. Right. Yes. Yes. It's very, very traditionally Jewish, yeah. which I loved, yeah. you know, and yeah. I got to do it in a Catholic church. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, it must be interesting, too, that you so inhabited that role and, um, I I do it does seem like people kind of do kind of treat you like a former president. <laughs> Am I right? I mean, I saw I when I looked around I saw that they were that you were being interviewed on the BBC about race in America after Ferguson. And and I know that's about you and everything you've done, but I also think there's this stature that you have that Am I, am I wrong about that? Well, I, I would say that's the image. That's mm. not the reality. Uh, I don't consider my stature any, any different than my neighbor. Uh, but uh, I, I, have, I, I have a public persona. I also have a responsibility. And uh, I, whether I had played Bartlett or not, I would still uh, try to rise to accepting the responsibility of speaking out uh, on any of these issues that yeah. I felt were uh, important, you know, yeah. to 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 take a stand on. Yeah, and but it's it's, it's kind of an extraordinary thing that you that you um, you know that you were offered this role that you inhabited, and then that it has become part of it has become part of your identity. And, and mm. yeah, it's interesting. I I I. I, I I kind of, you know, it's been 10 years uh, yeah. since uh, the show uh, ended its run. It's still seen, you know, on some of the... Um, uh, the it's uh, on Netflix. N- n- yeah, Netflix, yeah. okay, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but I, I, it's, yeah, I kind of closed the door when I left that, that set, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of, uh, yeah, I kind of left it there. It, it's, it, it's what it is. When it was, mm-hmm. it's not now, mm-hmm. and uh, I I can't I can't say that the show had any influence on anyone that ever watched it. But I can't determine if it did not. I I, I just really don't know. I heard later that yeah, really it had a a very strong effect on young people and particularly young women. Who got involved? Getting into politics, in, uh, yeah. Yeah, got involved yeah. In, in public life at least, yeah. you know, or went on to public service. That's what I think of politics. I, politics is kind of a, almost a rude word uh, to be accused of something. <laughs> Always a politician, you know. How unfortunate, you know. But the, 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 the word public service is the way I would describe uh, people who run for office or who serve, you know. Yeah. That's the higher calling, you know. Uh, 
that, that I think transcends politics, if mm. you think of it as public service. Well, and it, so that's yeah. kind of what, uh, if we serve, if the show, The West Wing, helped to inspire people to public service, that's, uh, that's very gratifying. But you know, um, in large part, it's Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. It was his vision. Uh, we didn't come in and make any of that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although there, yeah. there are these moments where uh, there was the, the Shibboleth episode where... Shibboleth, yeah. yeah where yeah. you, as the president, are interviewing this Chinese Christian asylum seeker skeptically. Yeah. yeah. And there's this line, um, you know, Mr. President, where he says to you, Mr. President, Christianity is not demonstrated by a recitation of facts, um, which... So sounds to me like something you would have written, you know that, or that, that it, it resonated <laughs> that absolutely, smart, yeah. <laughs> absolutely with who you are. I don't know. <laughs> well, there was so much of the show and so many of the issues that I did take mm. a deeply a personal interest in. There were some that I did not. You yeah. know, I'm opposed to the death penalty, and I've been an outspoken advocate for. Uh, uh, opposition to the death penalty, capital punishment. Yeah. Uh, and so there was an episode where I uh, I had to decide to give this guy a reprieve or not in a, uh, uh, on a federal case. Yeah. And president, I, I, don't, I think the last president that actually did it was John Kennedy. So that's how long ago it was. And uh, that, uh, that issue faced Bartlett. And... Uh, and Aaron couched it with him praying the rosary in the Oval Office and, and having a conversation with his pastor, uh, who was played mm. by Carl Malden, mm. and talked about it. And I personally am opposed to the death penalty. And I told Aaron, I said, let's have uh, Bartlett let this guy off. He said, uh, no, no, that's not going to happen. And, and so I called my lawyer, Joe Cosgo, who was in that episode, incidentally, okay. as an attorney. Yeah, he's, uh, and he said, well, yeah, Martin would let him off, but Bartlett wouldn't. It's a political decision. I see. And I said, oh, my God, yeah. I don't get to make these decisions, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it was couched in a moral frame of reference. It cost him dearly to make that decision or not to make that decision, to let him go, to let him live. You know, he paid for it in a deeply personal way. And that was the kind of thing that I always, always loved about the show, that nothing came cheap, that, that um, there were no easy answers, no quick solutions. It was costly. And as I said uh, earlier, I think, uh, anything worthwhile has got to cost us something. And if it doesn't, we're left to question its value. Right. So uh, I had a lesson in politics uh, <laughs> that uh, right. it was very hard to swallow. Well, Did Bartlett let that guy go? Mm -hmm. mm. That didn't sit well with me, but that was the political decision. You yeah, know? that was the reality of the office. Yeah. Where is your where, where where is your passion, your curiosity directed right now? Where are you feeling called to this spiritual discipline of human presence, you know, and what's happening in the world now? Um, well, it's so clear in the horrible situations uh, in the Mideast and so many countries, particularly Syria. We've watched this yeah. horror unravel. Uh, there is no Syria. Mm. It has become a living hell that people are trying to, 
to get out of. Uh, it's just that this descent into this level of inhumanity, yeah. of this level of insanity, uh, is clear to the whole world. We just watch in horror, and more violence creates more violence, and the, the, we're, we seem thrown back into uh, despair. Each time we move forward, we face despair. And yet, looking at the lives coming out of that horror, these extraordinary people who risked their lives getting out and then risked their lives trying to cross Europe, trying to get to a safe haven and to uh, be subject to so much uh, what I call basically, you know, Vulgarity, you know, mm. that they yeah, they're word. being stopped from coming in here yeah. or going where they can be safe. Uh, I would think that the answer to the horrors that we witnessed recently in Paris would be to open our arms even wider and embrace even more and say, "This is our answer to this insanity." Mm. And I, without a a beat. I wish I could have selected this year's Nobel Peace Prize winner. It would have been Miss Merkel of Germany. Yeah, right. <laughs> she opened the mm. doors and just left them open. Mm. And uh, she was a great source of inspiration to all of us. She still is. Mm -hmm. She hasn't backed down. Mm -hmm. They're being a little more careful. But uh, the fact that she opened the doors and kept them open, that's, that's a reflection of how we used to be. That was our country. Uh, in the last right. century, you know, we were we made ourselves on on the yes, labor. So as the of son of immigrants, immigrants, a son of exactly. immigrants from two different yeah. countries. Also, yeah. also. So that that that's yeah. the one overriding uh, mm -hmm. issue that I would that I'm immensely concerned about and that I am troubled by. And the Christian uh, response to me seems so clear. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't see any gray area with this one. No, <laughs> the, the orphan, yeah, the outcast, <laughs> the stranger. Yeah, this is the cup is offered, not altered. No, Sorry. it is not. Yeah. No, that that yeah, this is we know what we should do, you know, and uh, when we get political and we get frightened and we get selfish, uh, and uh, then we do stupid things mm. and we lose our humanity. Mm. You said somewhere. Or wrote, I think, I don't know what salvation means in a personal sense. For me, a better word is freedom, um, which I think for you is connected with this this idea that you keep come bringing home about. I mean, is it, isn't it ironic that the the work of a lifetime is be, being more human, <laughs> really yeah. becoming human? But talk yeah, to me about what human, you know, yeah. what how the language of freedom, you know, open that up for me. What that what that means and how that plays into your sense of... Well, it, another word for freedom, I guess, is responsibility, mm -hmm. you know, is looking at a situation, whether it's deeply a personal one or a family or community or nation, you know, it is one where we uh, step up to responsibility. We, we embrace responsibility. The, the the freedom cannot be trifled with on any level, whether it's national or or personal. It is it is a it is a a reflection of the imagination. 
in all things human. Uh, we are meant, we are born, and we are encouraged to strive towards freedom, always. Because that's the only way that we can identify ourselves. I think one of the worst problems for young people these days, and uh, it's very clear to me that they carry it into adulthood, this, uh, this terrible feeling of uh, peer pressure. It's how will I look if I step out, and yet my heart tells me so. Or how will I look if she disapproves or he doesn't think uh, I'm doing the right thing, and yet my heart tells me I must do this because that's the only way that I know myself. <laughs> and that is very costly. And it, in, and it is the, the door, really, uh, to a deeper sense of self-knowledge. If I know when I'm not free, then I will always strive for freedom. Hmm. Um, we, we get examples of this, of people living in, in, uh, in repressive societies. What kept them going? Their imagination of being free, knowing that it was possible that someday they would be free. Um, and never, ever losing sight of that, that that's worthy of our human struggle, that that's something that, that to, to lay it all on the line for, that, and that it's such a deeply personal thing, and yet it's reflected in our, our national product, if you will, uh, in our universal uh, image of ourselves. And, this, yeah. yeah, this determination to live free, to live honest. And yet, in, in spiritual terms, um, you know, you're not, when, when you talk about your core of gratitude and community and love and these things as the basis for your action, I mean, you're not, you're not talking about freedom as autonomy or isolation or, or mere independence. I mean, it might have a quality of independence. You're, you're, you're talking about freedom yeah. as connected to community in some way. I think yes, exactly. that's what I hear coming yeah. through. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It is um, it, uh, so often people get stuck, and I did myself uh, on the spiritual journey, if you will, with piety. And that is a terrible stumbling block. I'm not, I have nothing against piety, but I think that piety is the, the road. It is not the, the destination. Mm. If being pious leads you to a form of personal reflection and acceptance of a higher power, then it has its purpose, but it has to be discarded uh, in the in the larger picture, in favor of the community, because piety is something that you do, or you tend to do alone, mm. and true freedom, spirituality can only be achieved in community, mm. even if the community is only imagined. I mean, someone living in a cell by themselves, yeah. alone in repression, uh, you know, in the darkest of times, still, they are in community. That's the, the wonderful thing, that image that Catholicism uses in 
refers to as the communion of saints. Yeah. That even after we're gone, we're still a part of something that's very much alive and we respond to, you know. Mm. And our church, you know, is, uh, thank heaven for this extraordinary man, Francis, uh, who is teaching us that our church has to be less a museum for saints than it should be a hospital for sinners. Okay. <laughs> you know. But that's what I, that's I love the community of of, of saints and mm-hmm. sinners. <laughs> <laughs> you can't really separate them, you know. Mm-hmm. You can't identify one without the other, which is wonderful because that's community. Yeah. You know? But I, I I feel a part of a community even when I'm um, uh, distanced from it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I, I the 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 greatest mysteries are the simplest ones. Uh, that those are the ones that we confront every day. I had a conversation once with a, a priest. I was in I was traveling and, and went to confession in this very remote place, and and this guy and it was wonderful. We were having a theological uh, uh, conversation in the confessional, and suddenly he said, well, we don't know what God is, do we? (laughs) And he he said it as if, well, you know, maybe I ran into someone who did, you know, I'm not... (laughs) I'm not going to foreclose that possibility. Right. But, and? you know, what it says is we, every time we try, to, we try to identify God, we are sure to identify what he is certainly, what she is certainly not. Yeah. Uh, but so we don't know what God is. And the genius of God to dwell where we would least likely look hmm. within the depths of our own being, our own shallowness, our own darkness. Our own humanity, that's the genius of God. And that may have been the only change in the universe since its inception. (laughs) Well, Martin Jean, Ramon Estevez, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. It's been wonderful to meet you. Thank you very much. Now you know what a windbag I am. (laughs) (laughs) You are wonderful, and you're perfect for radio, because that's what it's about, the voice. (laughs) I've so enjoyed this. Thank you so much, and I'm a huge fan of yours. Oh, well, thank uh, you. We're looking forward to this. Yeah, we will. We're going to produce this, I think, right away, and we will um, keep you informed about when we send you the podcast, you'll be able to listen, and uh, it's just very exciting. And I also think I have a show I want to send you where somebody talks about prayer in a wonderful way so I'll, I'll have a little really? send that. yeah I would look forward to okay that. yeah all right yeah. thank you thank you so much <laughs> bye-bye <laughs> bye-bye now